Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I am your host, Christopher, the person who is hosting this show that is Orphan Entertainment. I am hosting it with my co-host, a person who also hosts, Lydia. Is this Christopher, a person who hosts the Orphaned Entertainment with your co-host, a person who also hosts Lydia? <laughs> it is indeed Lydia, my co-host, who hosts the Orphaned Entertainment. <laughs> Hello, Christopher, our main host, who happily invites me to host Orphaned Entertainment. <laughs> Uh, We're having so I, much more fun than anybody listening is. Yes. <laughs> the only people that may understand are people that actually watch this film first <laughs> before listening to this show. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Hate, you guys You guys deserve like some major kudos. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, right off the bat, I apologize. <laughs> well, we'll get into all of that and we'll get into our apologies maybe. <laughs> Before we start, I want to thank everyone very much this time for tuning in. And for anyone who has not already, let you know that you can listen and subscribe to this show by visiting Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Spotify. And I encourage you to please rate and review us at any of those outlets if they allow it. You can also search for us in the podcast app of your choice. We have a Facebook group that you can join. Just go to Facebook.com and search for Orphaned Entertainment. If you happen to uh, have any comments or suggestions or general feedback, you can email those to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. If you'd actually like to speak your message, you can also you can do that. Please just record it with your phone or your computer and send it to that same address. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Orphaned Entertainment. And there you can watch many of the films that we have covered here on the podcast and usually get a heads up on what film we're going to be covering next. All of these links are on our webpage over at orphanedentertainment.com. So with that, we're going to take a little break, play a five-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we will discuss the film Lying Lips from 1939. Another five-minute mystery. Headquarters, Inspector Harris speaking. Inspector Harris, this is Peter Arnold. Yeah, what can I do for you? Inspector Harris, I, I think I'm going to be murdered. What? I, uh, just a minute ago, I received an anonymous letter threatening my life. Uh, have you any idea who it's from? No. Where are you now? I'm at my office in the Acme Building, tenth floor. I'll be right over. Stay right where you are. Oh yes, Inspector. Only hurry. Here's the place, Chief. The Acme Building. Okay. Hope we're not too late. Well, if we hurry, we can... What's the matter, Chief? Yeah. On the street, little pieces of glass. Glass? Where'd that come from? I don't know. Hey, Chief. Uh, look up there. See that broken window? That's Arnold's office. Come on, Stacy. Something's wrong up there. Oh. 
What's happened up here? Who are you? We're the police. I'm Inspector Harris, and this is my assistant, Joe Stacy. Oh, am I glad you've come. I'm Lois Cranston, Mr. Arnold's secretary. Yeah? Something terrible's happened. Mr. Arnold locked himself in this office. Yes? And just a minute ago, I heard a shot and then glass breaking. Come on, Stacy. Help me break down this door. Okay. All right. Ready? One. Two. Three. There. Holy Moses. Look, Chief. Is anything wrong in... Mr. Arnold! Will you look at that? A bullet hole right through his head. And the window's broken. The murderer must have been standing on the roof of that building across the alleyway and fired through this window. I'm afraid you're wrong. What do you mean? I mean that I'm arresting you, Miss Cranston, for the murder of Peter Arnold. How does the inspector know that Miss Cranston murdered Peter Arnold? We'll give you the solution in just a moment. But first... Welcome to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I'm Rich Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com and KCCinephile.com. And I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Let's begin with a report from our sergeant-at-arms. Vince, are there any housekeeping details today? Once the door is locked, there's no way out. The windows have bars that the jail would be proud of. And the only door to the outside locks like a vault. There's no electricity, no phone... No one within miles, so no way to call for help. Uh, thank you for that very thorough report. As you all know, oh, yes, we have a comment. It's time we started. We had better get on with it. Well, we're trying. As you all know, we're recording a new bumper for the podcast. So what testimonials can you give potential listeners? Yes, Al? I hope that as you listen to this... You are among your loved ones. Hmm, interesting feedback, I guess. Vince, what do you think he means by that? So many unexplainable things have happened here. You're not really selling it, guys. Chris, how do you think fans of classic horror, from Silent Screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, will feel after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? In the first moments, every muscle, every fiber will be afire with torment and agony. In the days to come, you will pray for death. Come on, doesn't anyone have something good to say about the Classic Horrors Club podcast? Yes, Bela. Well, this isn't a very pleasant way to entertain a guest. <laughs> At least someone's having fun. Let's adjourn on a high note. Al, would you like to sign us out? This concludes our danse macabre. Eloquent as usual. Thank you. Please join us for the next monthly episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, available where all fine podcasts are found. And now, back to our story. Mr. Arnold was shot from outside. The broken glass proves it. Oh, that's what you've tried to make us believe. No, Miss Cranston. You shot Peter Arnold from this very room, broke the window to make it look like the shooting was done from outside, and then went out and locked the door. It would have been a perfect murder except for one thing. What was that? A broken window. You see, we found the fragments of glass on the street. Well? If the bullet had been fired from the outside, the fragments of glass would have gone in the direction of fire. In other words, the glass would have landed inside the room, not on the street. No, Miss Cranston, you murdered Peter Arnold. I don't know why you did it, but we'll soon get the story out of you at headquarters. (laughs) 
Lying Lips is a film by writer, director, and producer Oscar Michal. Michaud. Michaud. Actually, it's Oscar Michal. It is spelled, kind of looks like it would be Michaud, but he actually pronounced it Michaud. Okay. Believe that or not, yes. Michaud is regarded as the first major African-American feature filmmaker and was described as one of the most successful African-American filmmakers of the early 20th century. This movie falls into a genre known as the race film, which was a film produced in the United States between 1915 and the early 1950s, and these films were produced for an all-black audience featuring black casts and often created by black filmmakers. Approximately 500 race films were produced during that time. Of these, fewer than 100 remain, largely because these films were produced outside the Hollywood studio system and some merrily forgotten. Michal worked several odd jobs and eventually ran a shoeshine stand in his early life. He became a Pullman porter on a major railroad, which at the time was considered fairly prestigious employment for an African-American. It was a relatively stable job, well-paid and secure, and it enabled travel and interaction with new people. This job was an informal education for him, and he profited financially and also gained contacts and knowledge about the world through traveling as well as greater understanding for business. When he left the position, he had seen much of the United States, had a couple thousand dollars saved in his bank account, and had made a number of connections with wealthy white people who would help his future endeavors. Michal moved to South Dakota, where he bought land and worked as a homesteader. While farming, Michal wrote articles and submitted them to some local papers. He decided to concentrate on writing, and in 1913, 1,000 copies of his first book, The Conquest, The Story of a Negro Homesteader, were printed. He published these anonymously for unknown reasons. The book was based on his experiences as a homesteader and the failure of his first marriage. But the overall theme was about African Americans realizing their potential and succeeding in areas where they had not felt they could. One of Mashaw's fundamental beliefs was that hard work and enterprise would make any person rise to respect and prominence no matter his or her race. In 1918, his novel, retitled The Homesteader, attracted the attention of George Johnson, the manager of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company in Los Angeles. Lincoln Motion Pictures is considered the first all-black movie production company. Michelle wanted to be directly involved in the adaptation of his book as a movie, but Johnson resisted and in the end never produced the film. So Michelle founded the Michelle Film and Book Company of Sioux City in Chicago. Its first project was the production of The Homesteader, he contacted wealthy connections from his career as a porter and sold stock for the company. The film and Michelle received high praise from film critics. The homesteader became known as Michelle's breakout film, and it helped him become widely known as a writer and a filmmaker. He would go on to produce 40 films, and all with the intent to counter white portrayals of African Americans, which tended to emphasize inferior stereotypes. He created complex characters of different classes. Lying Lips was a 37th film of Oscar Michal, so pretty late in his career. The film stars Edna May Harris and Robert Earl Jones, who is indeed the father of James Earl Jones. Edna May Harris was one of the premier African-American film actresses of the late 1930s and the early 1940s, appearing in films featuring, featuring mostly African-American casts. Her first real Hollywood break came when she landed a part in The Green Pastures in 1936 and Harris was a leading lady in Spirit of Youth in 1938. 
She'd also take the lead role in one other Michelle film, The Notorious Eleanor Lee. And that was in 1940. Between picture commitments, she toured with Noble Sissel's Orchestra as a featured vocalist along with Lena Horne and Billy Banks. Robert Earl Jones makes his screen debut in Lion Lips. He would make his next appearance alongside Edna Harris and the notorious Eleanor Lee as well. He'd disappear from movies for nearly 20 years until resurfacing in the early 60s. Jones acted sporadically after that, mostly in crime movies and dramas. He does appear in the 1973 Oscar-winning movie The Sting, where he plays Luther Coleman, the aging grifter who, along with his partners, gets the the plot started. Great part. Yes, and he would appear... (laughs) He would appear in minor roles in some films and some appearances in television through the 70s and through to the 90s. Now, it was interesting. I thought that Michelle, you know, he fought really hard to kind of break a lot of uh, the black stereotypes that was pretty typical in the early 20th century in films. Typically, the if you have a, an African-American in the film, they were the help. They were the, you know, the, the mamies, the, uh, mm-hmm. the butlers, the, you know, the... I don't know nothing about birth and no baby kind of stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, and so he fought very hard to uh, to kind of break those stereotypes. But I did find it interesting that his films, he still sort of had, they were almost still a little racist. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. he would cast like the lighter skinned black actors as the more well-to-do and more intelligent and the kind of the stars. And then the darker-skinned actors were often the heavies or the villains in the films. Mm-hmm. He got a lot of flack for that, I think, throughout his career, or after his career, perhaps. Right, yes, and I, was th- I found that very interesting. That he, on one hand, he was kind of trying to break these racial stereotypes, but he was kind of just replacing them with others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I thought that was... And they turned him into an interesting... It, turned him into an interesting individual to read about Mm -hmm, definitely now the quality of his actual film work i guess we'll get into here (laughs) yeah i expect we'll talk some more about that later i was actually really disappointed the homesteader is a lost film you can't find it anywhere i would have loved to have seen it just reading about some of the um the real life drama that happened around that and how they tried to have it shut down and uh, somebody claiming that it was about them and, you know, revealed secrets of their life. And actually the uh, censorship board was called in in Chicago to review the film as it was airing, they shut it down. And then uh, the censorship board watched all eight reels of the film and said, Nope, there's nothing inflammatory in this. It's fine. So they, you know, somebody tried to have this film shut down specifically, but the first all black, black directed, black produced, um, sorry, guys, I'm going to say black a lot. You're just going to have to deal with it. But it was the first one of its kind. And I had read that actually this movie, his first movie was made first feature length film with all of these qualities was made before Charlie Chaplin ever put out a film. Mm-hmm. So he, I mean, 1919, this is the silent era. This is very early on in filmmaking. And for him to have put out something of that scope so early on and with the limitations he was bound to have faced is really remarkable. Oh, um, absolutely. I don't know if you caught that he uh, produced a, a film. His next film he produced within our gates was actually, you're going to have to help me out on the name of the film, uh, it was actually in direct response to 
the movie. Oh, right. Um, in the movie produced Birth of a Nation, wasn't it? Birth of a Nation, yeah, which was very pro, kind of glorified the KKK. Mm-hmm. He produced a movie within our gates that's all about an in- intelligent black woman who goes and helps a school. Basically, it's just basically, it's taking all of those stereotypes and that were promoted in Birth of a Nation and pushing them aside. So two movies, I really wish I could see The Homesteader and Within Our Gates, and I couldn't find them anywhere. So that's, uh, you know, we talk a little bit about Lost Film on here. This is a director that while we're about to get into a film that you'll hear some differing opinions on, there's a lot of value to what he created. Unfortunately, it's you can't find it anymore. So... Uh, no, I think it's unfortunate. You got to think a handful of his films still exist, but out of five hundred films that fall in this genre, only a hundred mm-hmm. are, are are still available to us. So you got to think there are filmmakers out there who created a film that has, nobody knows about. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, for and that for, that's a real crime. It is for him to have created so many films. He directed forty-two films. It looks like. Um, it is remarkable and that there are that there is even one left and actually there's more than one you can find more by him but um you know the the odds were definitely against him in us even finding this film and the fact that he was able to do it effectively as an independent filmmaker is huge is huge the at, restrictions at, the, at this time were mm-hmm. massive yeah i mean it's almost unfathomable that someone who can barely own property yeah (laughs) could produce this prolifically or could direct this prolifically at this time yeah or to have uh, to find the resources i mean again it was Mm kind of like almost living a little bit of a charmed life that he found himself in the the good position of being something like you know the railroad porter where Mm -hmm. he has a a a certain amount of respect respect even though respect yeah yeah even though that he is indeed kind of in a uh servant uh capacity mm-hmm. but there's still i guess just a sort of a he's at the higher level of these mm-hmm. of the servant capacity sort mm-hmm. of thing and he was a- actually able to make these friends and get these contacts yeah, that, that direct would, that direct contact position as a servant regardless of race is extremely mm-hmm. uncommon so or you know traditionally extremely uncommon so yeah he definitely had some some really good fortune in or or some very good talents during his time in his and life. he had to have been a a, a very a fairly intelligent and intellectual individual yes definitely um, to really attract the attention and get these people to actually spend the time to actually speak to him get to mm-hmm. know him and befriend him to the point where they go all right i'll i'll buy stock in your company i'll mm-hmm. i'll give you you know a hundred dollars or whatever mm-hmm. it is um it's really really incredible and these films, I mean, he's one of the early producers of these films, but they would go on, you know, all the way through the the fifties and everything. And I mean, these are kind of like the precursors to what would come become like black exploitation films <laughs> uh, in, in some way. But hopefully, in a more positive light than those. <laughs> some, yeah, true. But, but truly, I mean, we'll, and again, we'll get into this in a minute when we start actually discussing the film, which I think we're about to do. But yes. uh, you know, as you mentioned, he, I, I think he makes a real effort to make the characters in his films people and not mm-hmm. stereotypes. 
Yeah, and I think there is, and again, we'll get to this, and maybe we'll save. This is better for final thoughts. Or <laughs> maybe we're avoiding. Maybe we're avoiding talking about it. <laughs> There's so many more interesting things to talk about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in fact, I, I think I will. What I was going to say, I'll try to remember to to say in more of the final thoughts. Capacity. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and start talking about Line Lips from 1939. The movie opens and we begin with a song from from Elsie played by Edna May Harris, and she is singing at a, a very swanky all black uh, nightclub. Song fades and we are in an office. A white man, Mr. Farina, is at a desk, and a black woman comes in. This is going to be Elizabeth, and she shows him a check, a check of some value apparently. The check is from a gang of mobsters. Well, who from, how come, and what for? Tony Guido and Nick Cavelli. Mmm, I smell trouble. Their gang just pulled a big job. The peacock robbery. Smells like one of their jobs. They keep me on the anxious seat, all right. Well, what do they want? A little party in the private apartment upstairs after the joint closes tonight. That's easy. It's for rent for such purposes. With a half dozen of our girls to entertain them, including Elsie. Mm, that's what I was expecting. And what I feared. There goes the big dough. The owner is ready to kiss the money goodbye. He knows Elsie won't go to one of these parties. Elizabeth won't hear of it. Why does he let Elsie make the rules? The other girls do it. He still won't force her. The man says he may be a gangster, but he still hasn't sunk that low. That's such a great line. He says he beats up men, but he's never sunk to beating up a woman. I love That's right. that. It's 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 funny. It's like oh, it's just such a random way to get you to like a character. <laughs> <laughs> the woman says if he'll make her brother the manager, he'd be able to do it. Farina still refuses. On her way out, Elizabeth opens the door and calls Mr. Farina over to see out into the club. We watch, who we later find out is her brother, uh, perform an act out on the uh, on the stage. Elizabeth says that a manager should be able to perform in case an act drops out and suggests that Farina think it over. Later, Farina is talking with the current manager, Ben Hadnot. As I started to say, Elsie's a good performer and they like her. She's too high hat. What do you mean, too high hat? Well, I mean that she should sit in on some of these parties. Many of our customers are always asking her to. You understand, eh, Hadnot? I understand, but is that just right? You know that none of our customers like to see these mixed parties. The law doesn't like it. And you know that these men who want to take the girls who work here out on parties aren't colored men. 
As to Miss Bellwood, she's a good person. Pleases everybody with her singing and dancing. So don't you think that's quite enough? Of course. But the other girls go in for them, so why not her? That's her business. I hired her to do just what she's doing. If she wanted to go out like that, I couldn't stop her. But if she doesn't, that's her business, too. Despite Farina's insistence, Hardnot refuses to try and talk Elsie into going to any of these parties or date the customers. Headnot leaves as another owner, Mr. Garetti, enters. Farina quickly fills him in, and Garetti thinks Hadnot should make her. He'll talk to Hadnot himself. Grotti tries to pressure Hadnot into doing what they want. Hadnot refuses. If they want to try and talk her into it, that's their business. But he'll have no part of it. This is the first bit where it starts getting really painful, I think. <laughs> because literally, even in the movie, Farina says all the stuff to Hadnot. Hey, you got to talk her into it. Hadnot says, I'm not going to do it. And then Garotti says, I'm going to talk to Hadnot. And then he says the same stuff to the point that Hadnot says, I just had this conversation with Farina. <laughs> and the audience is going, yeah, we know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it starts off as a little quirky and you're going, oh, it's a little funny that he has the same conversation. And then we go on. Rather than give in to them, had not quits. Outside the office, Elsie happens to be walking by and overhears. Now, now, had not. You don't have to do that. Let's talk it over. You see, I try to get... both major positions very clear. There's no alternative but to do what you want me to or resign. I'm resigning. You get plenty of men in my race to do anything you ask them to. So why waste your time on me? As far as Miss Bell was concerned, she's a lady. I have too much respect for her. For myself, try to persuade her to do what you know and I know is wrong. As to you two... If you had any respect for the unfortunate members of my race, especially the girls who are forced to work here, you wouldn't try to make them do ugly things. But since you haven't, I don't like your attitude. I'm quitting. Good day. Hadnot storms out and runs into Elsie outside. Hadnot explains what's been happening and why he's leaving. It means that I'm leaving, Miss Bellwood. You leaving? But why? If you overheard much of the conversation, you ought to know. It's because of you. I'm sorry. But you mustn't. You can't. I won't let you give up your job on account of me. Now, I... The only way I could get it back and keep it would be for you to do what they wanted me to make you do. And if you did, I would hate both you and myself. Oh, you're so fine and noble. And jobs are scarce. I could never feel comfortable or happy knowing that you gave up yours because you wanted me to stay decent. Elsie says she'll quit too, but had not talked her out of it. He has another job lined up anyway. He's been selected for detective force. <laughs> He tells her to keep doing what she's doing and keep being nice. He likes her that way. (laughs) And we get another performance from Elsie. There's certain something in this world that I like best. I depend on one thing for my total happiness. No, it isn't money. No, it isn't fame. You may think it's funny when I start to explain. Got no shoes on my feet, ain't got nothing to read. But I've got a heart full of rhythm. There's a lot of performing in this movie. It is. It's almost, almost a musical. <laughs> yeah. Because we've got, we've had, if you count uh, the uh, the one, um, the one brother out on the piano mm-hmm. doing his short routine, we've had three routines within 10 minutes Mm -hmm. yes although i will say elsie i mean she is kind of at at what could be considered kind of the triple threat you know she can sing she can dance she can 
kind of act. Oh, that's saying <laughs> a lot. <laughs> she can sing and dance, and she's pretty. I'll give you that. Yes, I, she's actually her singing is actually I think uh, pretty good, and her you know the little bit that we see her doing her dance I think does pretty well too. So mm-hmm. I can see where her career uh, touring the nation with the uh, with the orchestra was probably. A better choice for much better. <laughs> it's, uh, to to call her stiff in these scenes is gracious. Well, when we next see or our, our next scene, we uh, join Elsie and Ben Hadnot out having dinner. They talk more about Hadnot's uh, new job, and Elsie thanks him for being such a stand-up guy. Hadnot asks if anyone has uh, replaced him yet. Elsie says that the Landry boys, who happen to be relatives of hers, have taken over. She isn't thrilled about it, however. She thinks they are trouble. After dinner, Hadnot drops Elsie off at her apartment. He goes to walk her in, but she tells him it isn't necessary. And before she goes in, she thanks him for the evening. I want to thank you for a fine evening. But if I find out that you're lying about that detective job, I'm going to make you let me do something that I never thought I'd ever do. Take care of a man. Inside, Elsie finds all the lights on, and her auntie, who she lives with, apparently asleep in her bed. Elsie turns off the light and gets ready for a bath, to some very dramatic music. Yes! <laughs> it is something, it's, it's the something's gonna happen music, and, and nothing does. <laughs> and, and there's a, there's, it's funny to call it a little bit of skin, uh, it, it's a very little bit of skin. There's a little shoulder shown. <laughs> yeah, but the way it starts, the and the the way it kind of goes and it lingers, you kind of for a minute you're thinking, are they going to show? Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, or, or somebody's I mean, going to attack her or something. Yeah, there's something strange about this sequence, and then nothing happens. She's in a robe suddenly. Yeah, but I still would consider this a fairly racy undressing, even though you don't see anything. What is implied mm-hmm. is just kind of like, wow, 1939, a black woman on screen. Hello. Well, yeah. and, and I said, you know, there's some shoulder, there's some some shoulder blade visible. Mm-hmm. And I we're not talking about with, you know, typically when we've seen movies in the night, you know, from the 1929 era, they'll have like a chemise or a slip on. And in this case, it's just open back so it's right. it is very risque but well, then of even course, after nothing. i mean the camera fades as she's undressing and then mm-hmm. we see the as it fades back in she's slipping on her robe but then you see her shimmer out of her her underwear oh, i didn't like, even notice that yeah so wow like, you know yeah, exactly <laughs> Ooh. and yeah, then we kind of get a repeat when she goes into the bathroom and you think and again she starts yeah. to undo her robe and <laughs> the camera just sort of lingers there and i'm thinking but again, it fades kind of, or it just does the you know uh, foot level camera shot or something like that, so you don't actually see anything. Mm-hmm. We do see her in the bathroom again. You don't actually see any nudity, but again, it's all you know bare from just above where you would, and a, a bare knee and her bare shoulders, and it's still I, I would consider that still mm, very risky. Paulette Goddard would not have gotten away with it. And in the bath, Elsie begins to think out loud. Well, Benny, my man, I saw you give up your job tonight to defend a girl's honor. A girl almost a stranger to you. But she's a good girl, Benny. 
And you stood up for her and believed in her with the price of your job. That's what I call a man. You're all right, Mr. Hadnock. I'd like to see some other colored man give up his job on account of any girl. Why, he'd throw at anybody that would show him 50 cents. I'm sorry to say. And then take her back for himself. <laughs> Pretty rotten setup. But you, you're out of a job, Benny. You've got to live and get along until you find another one. Now, you may have this job that you mentioned, and you may have just said it to console me, but I'll find out. I've seen plenty of women taking care of men, worthless, trifling, good-for-nothing men, and I've hated them for it. Isn't that funny? I want to take care of one now, too. You, Benny. But you're such a good man, Benny. But this is different. You've just got to be all right. I've just got to do this. I want to give you everything that I make and let you give me what you want me to have. Will you promise me you'll do this, dear? It'll make me so happy. Painful for the time it was made was the, I'll give you all my money and you just decide what I should have. Like, what? (laughs) Well, I'm... I have to admit, I'm not as troubled by that because clearly, I mean, this is making a point about certain women who will not, not bad women, but women who will continue to just support a man who's lazy and no good. Right. Which she hates, which she does say she hates. But in this case, it's like, you're a good man. I know you're going to do, you're doing good things. The really painful part is not her attitude. The really painful part is the really horrendous pacing and awkwardness of the talking out loud to herself it's just it's and i can't tell if it's just really poorly directed or if they were doing the best they could to get a really good performance out of her and she just couldn't hack it i i don't know i can't tell her bath is mercifully interrupted by the by the phone ringing Her her external monologue, (laughs) her very simple, uh, (laughs) innocent. And I will. um, (laughs) This is the first time I noticed it when I was I was watching. I watched two different copies of the film, and because of the you know the status of the film being the public domain and being as old as it is, depending on which one you download, there are a couple quick edits here and there, and little bits dropped off. Uh, I downloaded Mm. one from online and uh the phone is ringing and she there's a scene where she's actually saying oh all right don't you're gonna wake up my auntie i'll come you know uh, i watched one on amazon mm-hmm. and that is not in there so oh interesting okay it's i didn't just, catch that one yeah there are some discrepancies between the discrepancies. versions that you watch <laughs> i noticed actually the one on amazon i wouldn't recommend because i think there is some bad little bits of where suddenly the a scene that comes just like a few minutes later, you'll get this real quick cut of that scene opening, and then it goes back to where you were. I'm like, what in the world happened there? So not uh, the one I'd recommend. If that is the easiest yeah. one for you to watch, then that's fine, but uh, not the one I'd necessarily recommend. I would go to our YouTube channel, and I'd watch that one. Hey! <laughs> good, good plug! <laughs> We do get a uh, quick flash of Farini, Garotti, and I guess the and, and the Landry boys celebrating in the uh, office. I don't know why, but we do. <laughs> Back at the apartment, someone on the phone insists that they speak to Elsie's aunt. It's a matter of life and death. Elsie tries to call 
uh, call her auntie awake, but she doesn't stir. Elsie just doesn't want to wake her if she's that tired. No, it's just, it's so awful. It's, you're, you're being so gracious. You're being so matter of fact. Yes. <laughs> so she walks in <laughs> and she says, Auntie, Auntie, are you awake? I guess you're still awake, or I guess you're still asleep. Poor thing, you must be so tired. Well, I don't care what they say. I'm not going to wake you up. <laughs> it, what are you doing? Why are you standing here yelling at your aunt who you think is asleep? It is so bizarre. Yes. <laughs> this is why it's painful. Yeah. Uh, she goes back to the phone, but the caller has hung up. Now feeling suspicious and a little uneasy, she goes back to her aunt's room and finally shakes her to try to wake her and discovers that she's been shot in the head. She screams, faints, and then recovers. And then gets back up. (laughs) And calls the police. (laughs) It's it's so weird. She she didn't cry. She just, you know, full, full front shot, screams, hands to the face, falls over and then yeah pretty quickly i thought somebody's got to find her and help her no i think there is like a real brief camera fade so there's some indication that a little time has passed i missed that (laughs) well if you blinked or yeah yeah (laughs) at the wrong down to write something (laughs) in your notes you would have missed it yep oh my well the police arrive and begin questioning elsie And we get a synopsis of everything we just saw. (sighs) It is literally like they are reading the script to us. (laughs) It is literally like they are reading the script to us and then repeating each other. Yes. Oh, yeah. That happens quite a bit in this film. Uh, Well, I I came in and tried to wake my aunt. You tried to wake your aunt. you came in and tried to wake her? (laughs) And then the phone rang. The phone rang. The phone rang? (laughs) It's, why? Why? uh. Someone was struggling to get this to the hour mark. (laughs) Yes. They're literally, there are movies out there where they repeat themselves in the movie for comedic comedic Mm -hmm. effect. This is not one of them. (laughs) This, This movie could have easily been called an exercise in padding. Or repeating lips (laughs) instead of lying lips. The two officers step aside to talk. Uh, I'll go ahead and mention just because it's... uh, Oh, I I should mention one officer is is Robert Earl Jones, James Earl Jones' father. And it's pretty obvious as soon as he starts talking. He sounds a lot like (laughs) him. (laughs) The two cops discuss the case and the possibilities and decide it's just too complicated for them to make the call of her being guilty or innocent of the killing of her aunt. They'll have to take her downtown and book her. The logic there. Yeah. Uh. And yeah, and we get their entire thought process spelled out to us by their in, in their discussion. By repeating what just mm-hmm. happened again. again. Mm-hmm. So they take her down and they book her. Officer Wenzel uh, talks to the police matron and arranges Elsie to stay in a room rather than a cell. Uh, Officer Wenzel is the Robert Old Jones character. I think it's Wenzel. Windsor. Mm-hmm. Windsor. Windsor asks if there is anyone else he can call. The only friend she can think of is Ben Hadnot. Windsor visits Hadnot. The two apparently know each other, and they fill each other in on what's been going on. And I think this is actually the one time where they cut, and they don't 
repeat everything. <laughs> <laughs> this is also one of the most notably poor moments of direction. And how's that? Uh, so, you know, they're sitting there discussing this is what's been going on at the nightclub. And and I admit, I really sort of like Hadnot. Mm-hmm. Um, he, seem, he seems very genuine. Uh, and, of course, Windsor, this is early on in his career, but he continued to have a career for good reason. And, but there's a moment where they're talking and and he s- says... It like the, again, we get this weird front shot with the camera, and he says, "It just makes me so angry when I see these girls being treated like this. I just want to makes my you know, blood go. boil." Yeah, yeah, makes my blood boil. But he's just sitting there, yeah. <laughs> and then it cuts away, and his hands are folded neatly in his lap. He's you know anybody else that's this worked up the words that he's using say he's really furious about this and he's ready to take action and his body language says why yes i would like another glass of another <laughs> cup of tea thank you for offering it's very strange and this i have to put this down to a direction choice no oh, very possible yeah and inexperience this is his debut i mean he's never been on film before that is true, but I think we know a good director will say, "Yeah, true, yeah, true. you could do that better." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. More final thoughts. I need to start writing yeah. this down. <laughs> do we need a pause? Yeah. <laughs> Windsor asks Hadnot to come down to the station to help out on the case, since they both are convinced that Elsie had nothing to do with the crime. They visit Elsie, and after Windsor leaves, Hadnot and Elsie sit down to talk. The other arresting officer has a meeting with the district attorney. She was shot between 11 and 12 o'clock last night. Now what time were you called? Between 3 and 4 a.m. She must have been dead at least three hours before the girl, according to her story, discovered the body. Just about. You know, this case offers something. Here are two colored women living alone together, who one finds the other mysteriously murdered. Now what? I've detailed Wanzer to investigate it. That's sensible. Being a colored man, he might be able to find out things that one of our other officers could not. And I expect him to uncover something by this afternoon. Their discussion ends with Windsor bringing in Elizabeth and the two Landry boys. Elizabeth tells the DA that the aunt once told her that Elsie had a lot of insurance out on her aunt. Elizabeth's brother speaks up and says he's now the manager of the club. You're the manager of the club? <laughs> so what? <laughs> this is one of the few moments where that repetition is funny. Yes. He begins to tell a story about last night, and the scene fades to show his tale. <laughs> Not really his tale, though. It's kind of someone else's tale. A little bit. <laughs> a lot of someone else's tales. A lot of scantily clad dancers' tales, I was going to say, which begins with dancers and him waiting impatiently for his meeting with the owners. Very scantily clad dancers. In fact, scantily clad to the point that I couldn't tell if they were fully clothed or not. They were, well, they had effectively Tassels. they had fringe they had bikinis they had like yeah. feather covered bikinis I, I, or something oh, i hope they had bikinis i honestly couldn't tell i i believe they did <laughs> they were however not the best dance troupe i've ever seen <laughs> i you know you compare them to the scene in singing in the rain where all the girls come out at the party <laughs> and they're all doing the it's very similar um 
I, I almost want to chalk up the dancing to more of a jazz style yeah, than sure. a cabaret style, yeah. which ironically, they work at a cabaret, but more of rather than strict choreography, a kind of looser dance style. Yeah, but so you I would wasn't... expect a whole troop of girls that are all supposed to be doing <laughs> the same move to actually be in time with each other. And... Well, I don't know. As we know, they spend late nights at parties with people upstairs, yeah, so maybe and that's not their prime purpose. If it is jazz, I guess it's, you know, it's allowed to be free form and just <laughs> yeah. crazy and whatever. Well, Landry and his brother uh, step outside at 11.08 and have a cigarette. They see Elsie come out hail a cab, and leave. Landry says he told his brother to go back inside in case the owners send for him. He decided to stay outside since it was so nice. About, hmm, 25 minutes later, he sees Elsie return. The DA calls for Elsie to be brought to the office and thanks the Landrys for the information and shows them out. Yeah, the uh, Landry brother, again, not the best actor in the world. I, I equated most of the acting to this. It's like going to like a high school production. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I he Yeah, we'll we'll get we'll have more closing thoughts later. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elsie is now in a jail cell. She is with Hadnot and a lawyer. The three try to figure out how to disprove Landry's story, but they can't come up with anything. Elsie passes time in jail and Hadnot visits. They kiss and embrace. So apparently time has passed and they have gotten close. Why give me false hope? Just leave me here to slowly succumb to this living death. I want to forget that I was ever born and that I ever had any hope and that I was ever a free person, once happy and hopeful. I can both understand and appreciate your hopelessness and despair, I but I want to tell you, dear, that I love you. I have loved you long before you even knew it. And that I've dedicated my life to righting this great wrong and setting you free. Since you didn't kill your auntie, somebody else did. So you see, I must ultimately succeed. And I will succeed. Apparently, Elsie has been tried and convicted now. Uh, now that some time has passed, Hadnot is sure someone will slip up and start talking, now that they think they're safe. Yet another plot thread is brought up out of nowhere about Elizabeth's husband. He was apparently in love with the aunt years ago, before they all moved to the city. Elsie says she thought he still loved her even after he and Elizabeth were married, but she hasn't seen or heard from him since the night of the murder. This is pretty random. Uh, This is pretty random, but uh, Elsie does mention when they're first questioning her that her aunt was seeing a man, but he didn't have a the way she phrases it is she knew someone but you know he wasn't like he wasn't her husband or boyfriend or anything Mm. so there is a little tie in there but it passes pretty quickly so it's easy to miss i missed it (laughs) (laughs) we also find out that the aunt's insurance money which can no longer go to elsie since she's been convicted of murder and sentenced to life is up for grabs the court will decide who gets it. Elizabeth and her brothers have applied for it as next of kin. Windsor and Hadnot both have their suspicions of Elizabeth and her brothers. They are sure this case is about to crack. And we find out more about everyone 
stuff that you would have thought would have come up before a woman is sentenced to life in prison. <laughs> but uh, yeah, apparently whoever wrote this one thought police investigated murders after they convicted the person and sent him to jail. They, they <laughs> do that here, don't they do it there? <laughs> <laughs> apparently, typically that's what you do before the case is closed. Uh, yeah. um, well, we're so progressive these days. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, that's at the 45-minute mark, and uh, there's only like 10, 15 minutes left to go on this, and I don't think I could describe kind of some of the re- more ridiculous <laughs> plot points that come up uh, in this. We can talk about it and we can spoil it because I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really thought that too. I thought this is probably going to be the second movie ever that we tell how it ends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a problem with, with actually just telling how it ends. I'm not going to go through step by step. Yeah. What happens is apparently... Elizabeth's husband was indeed still in love with the aunt. We find out that he was tricked into marrying Elizabeth because Elizabeth told her that she was pregnant. Faked a pregnancy. That's the one way to always guarantee. No, it's not the one way to always guarantee, but it's probably the closest bet. (laughs) And he was effectively forced by her brothers uh, to stay living with Elizabeth, even after he found out that under, she lied under threat of death so yeah, yeah. What? this is all the this is all the information provided by the reverend <laughs> the random reverend his i believe his name is reverend deus ex machina but <laughs> i could be mistaken on the name <laughs> oh here it is sure reverend bryson my bad <laughs> oh close, yeah very very simple mistake there i yeah, can see where I, that would happen there's, there's some confusion <laughs> yes but yes, again, this is the kind of stuff you have had not and Windsor going and investigating the case. It's like, well, wait a minute. She's been convicted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's usually by the time it goes to trial and someone's convicted, that's when people consider the case closed. I, not you almost, when you not when you actually start investigating. Yes. You almost wonder if they didn't just say the wrong phrase and mean she's been she's been booked or been uh charged but they said convicted right uh, it's really confusing because well know, they even say she's sentenced to life yes i i <laughs> I, I it so yeah oh, fact checkers apparently they didn't have them back then but anyway <laughs> this man elizabeth's husband apparently finally had enough and said he was gonna go to the aunt and if he won't have her he was going to shoot her in the head and then kill himself. And that's what happened. And they find this out by taking one of the Landry brothers to a haunted house. And scaring him into talking. This happened in this film. <laughs> it did. This is how it happened. We're not making this up. We wouldn't mess with you this way, guys. <laughs> it's the most crazy insane it's like sure why not just start throwing things at the wall and see what sticks <laughs> that's this film yeah and what's really baffling well i mean not not like this is the only thing so then elizabeth 
upon finding out, finding a note from her, uh, from her husband, Mr. Green, that he's going to do all this, decides on the spot that she's going to frame Elsie for it by calling Elsie until she answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it works. Yeah, the big red herring is the idea that maybe the uh, club manager had, you know, killed the aunt to... You you read the synopsis of this thing, and it's like, oh, and they frame her for the because she won't go to parties. I'm like, well, that's really not exactly what happened, but no, no, not like not at all. Right, happened. And what it it, the big you know scheme breaks down when Elizabeth and her brothers find out they can't immediately claim the insurance money, which apparently was true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's, well, it's so clunky. So there, ugh, gosh, let's just talk about all the things that didn't have to happen in this movie that made it more confusing, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Start with, Hadnot didn't have to get fired for all of this to happen. There was no reason for him to go decide to be a detective. He could have still been working there. Elizabeth's brother could have still said, oh, yeah, we saw Elsie leaving. They still could have been after the insurance money. There's no reason for them to be involved in the club at all. It's right. so random. So that's the first thing. Uh, let's see. What else? <laughs> Elsie didn't need to have a long conversation with herself in the bathtub for everybody else's benefit. <laughs> they actually could have done that as a conversation between Elsie and Hadnot and actually built some believability behind this romance instead of just having random, oh, yeah, by the way, I really like you. Let's kiss. Yeah. Which is a little a little over the top, not as much over the top as some of the things that happen in this movie. <laughs> uh, they didn't have to have the uh, John Gre- or Ned Green, <laughs> Elizabeth's husband, being in love with the aunt at all. In fact, he didn't even have to be there. It's so they. It's like, yeah, it's like they had no idea what they were doing, and they were like trying to fit a whole bunch of people into the movie that had no reason to be in the movie. And as, as a result, they gummed up the storyline so badly that it's just a wreck. It's a wreck. It is a wreck. Yeah. You could have actually just made Elizabeth and the, and the brothers just out of spite. Yes. Frame easily frame, uh, or just wanting the money. I mean, that's an, yeah, it's $15,000 in those days. I, I, pulled the conversion it's a quarter of a million dollars that's enough money for a lot of people to want to kill somebody sure <laughs> yeah and they work for just, gangsters <laughs> if you're gonna write stories if you're gonna write a crime drama know something about the law and know something bit. about law enforcement you don't take courses Emotive. to become to, de- to become a police detective yeah <laughs> <laughs> you, you do have to pa- uh, now you do have to pass some tests and things to become a police officer. Yes. You uh, have to be an officer first. Yes. <laughs> you don't just go join the detective force. Yeah. Uh, there, oh, there's so many things about this story that are just it, – it, what really – I have to admit one of the things that troubles me the most about this movie is it's written by a man who wrote a book – and who published a book. Apparently it was well enough read that somebody wanted to make it into a movie. And then the lines in this are are just so repetitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's, and it's very disappointing uh, when you realize that this is like like the 
third or fourth to his last film. I mean, this is mm-hmm. late in his career. So yes. this you, you can't chalk it up to, well, he didn't know. It was amateur. It was early. No. Yeah, exactly. This is the 37th film that this man directed. Exactly. I'm not saying he wrote all of them, but... He wrote, yeah. uh, like... 37 out of 42, something like that. Okay. And yeah. for, yeah, I mean, he has a lot of writing credits to his name. But to have, it's just such a massive failure. You have the most convoluted storyline I may have ever seen in any movie. I'm sure somebody's going to say, what about this or what about that? Okay, probably not the most, but in the top five. <laughs> <laughs> you have the it's, most... It's- Repent. It's probably the most convoluted that we've covered here on <laughs> the show. Definitely, that's fair. It's got the poorest dialogue, the poorest and most repetitive dialogue. It, the Elsie's lines, most of her lines would be believable if she were 14. Mm. But it is an adult woman singing in a nightclub, which is a pretty worldly job. For her to act and speak the way she does, especially especially for her to speak the way she does, just looking at the writing in it, I, I'm not sure. Like I, I'm not trying to knock her intelligence. I, she's just not believable as an adult woman mm-hmm. at all. You know. And then you have you have the pain of the writing itself, <laughs> and then you have the pain of the direction, where there are several scenes, including where the brother is spilling the beans where he's standing with his hands at his side, flanked by two men, and he's looking down the lens of the camera, reciting what happened. Yeah. And it's the direction is woeful. It's a good word for it, woeful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then and then you've got the main character cast as someone who frankly cannot act. She's got no acting, and certainly doesn't display any acting ability at all. Uh, and it, 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 I can't believe that the that the reason her character is so poorly portrayed. Not that she's a bad character, but that it's poorly. She's poorly portrayed. She is wooden and and false and awkward. And I can't chalk that up to the writing or the directing because in this movie you have two people that are – three people, in my opinion, that are very interesting to watch. And and whatever dialogue they're given, they're still captivating. And those three people are, in my opinion, had not. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least he comes across as very genuine. Elizabeth Green, who comes across as very – evil and conniving which she's supposed to and bizarrely Farina who (laughs) is this kind of big character he's kind of on the side but every scene he's in he's interesting or funny or emotive and so even Reverend Bryson you're like you know of course he's got this deep and loveless voice and he's even though he's telling this sort of weird story about this guy who's easily tricked into being married and turns out to be just a, a total idiot himself. Uh, this, the reverend is interesting. The reverend, you know, you, you actually believe him as a, a you know, upright sta- you know, member of the community. So it's not just the directing and the dialogue that make Elsie 
such a horrible character because there are other characters in this movie that are interesting to watch and believable in the parts, even with the same writer creating, presumably creating the lines for them. Yeah, I I think the best (laughs) actress, yeah, the best actor in the entire film is the villain. I think Elizabeth is is actually the best actress. Hands down. She's so good in it. Mm -hmm. And, And she's the only one that at no point... Do you go, well, that was a little wooden, at least not that I can think of. And no, she comes about, she comes across as certainly compared to everyone else as the most natural. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's, I think she's probably the only saving grace to this movie is that you actually think she's a bad guy. So you root for Elsie because the person that's trying to get her is so obviously evil. Mm-hmm. And and in not in a caricature way, even. You just believe her as being one of those conniving, selfish women that's going to come in and boss people around. And, uh, you know, she yeah. wanted to be in a load of other things. Uh, yeah, she's brilliant in this. She's great when, she, when we first meet her, when she talks to mm-hmm. Farina. She is... She comes across her desperation when she mm-hmm. realizes that they aren't going to be able to get this money right away, and she's mm-hmm. hammering it out on her on her brother. <laughs> and and uh, you, it's like that's good. You're conveying exactly everything you need to convey. Yes, but you're not getting anything back. <laughs> exactly. So it's it comes down to I think the the biggest killer of this movie. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, the biggest killer in this movie is the main character uh, being cast so poorly. And I think they brought her in because they were like, oh, she's this great entertainer. She's She is a very good singer. They open the movie with her singing, which is probably this, you know, the only thing that keeps people in their seats initially. <laughs> well, they go pretty quickly to Elizabeth Green, which is good. Yeah. Um but but that's I think her only saving grace in this movie is that she can, I think that's got to be the only reason they cast her. <clears throat> excuse me, is because she can sing, and it's about a nightclub singer. Right. Yeah. So yeah, she definitely fits the part. But yeah, she can't act. <laughs> Not at all. Not. And at, I no. can't say that most people in this film can't act either. Or maybe they could if they were actually better directed like you said you just don't know where the flaw truly is yeah well there there are interactions in this movie that are entertaining and interesting Mm -hmm. but it seems that the casting is so staggered by ability It, it it feels like they brought in entertainers to play main characters and not actors yeah but yeah yeah um the other thing I wanted to point out, this is one of the first things I thought of I wanted to mention kind of in the final thoughts or whatever, is, again, we have a director and a writer who is very trying very hard to not have the typical, stereotypical black actor, mm-hmm. which you don't find in this film. That is true. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a level of overcompensation. Everyone is so incredibly articulate in the way they speak in this film <laughs> to the point of being, it's not believable for anyone. To like, the point where some ever. of them seem like they don't understand the words they're using. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's almost like you're, you're getting someone to speak the lines phonetically yes. because they don't even, the, there's no contractions. I will, 
I will defy you to find someone to actually use the, that uses a contraction in this film. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought about it. I but... will not. I cannot. <laughs> I shall not. I, yes. there, there is no contractions. It's everyone is whatever was in the script. Is what they say. Is mm-hmm. what they say. There is no natural speaking at all by anybody and it's to the point where that in itself is a little bit painful it is because it's kind of like no one talks like this ever (laughs) i I pointed out like the cadence Mm -hmm. uh, of the way people talk it's every person in this movie shatners every person (laughs) they talk about going into their aunt's room and waking her and asking her if she would like to take the phone call, but she's asleep, <laughs> and all the lights are It's a run-on sentence, and it's it, – and what's really horrifying, <laughs> as soon as somebody starts talking to Elsie, they start doing it too. Yes. <laughs> I was like, no, you were talking fine a minute ago. Go back to the talking fine parts. Yeah, but, that's exactly what it feels like. It uh, feels like, again, I, it goes back to like school when you t- had to like memorize yes. some poem or something. Mm-hmm. And so you literally, you, you memorize it verbatim and you just run it off as quick as you can without any kind of inflection or change of yes. tone of voice because I want to get to the end and there I said it. And if I don't say it this way, I'll forget the next word. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Does yeah. It, that that is the style that is the the way they speak in this film. Yes, it is. It, it for for the most part with only a few exceptions. Yes, yeah. And I wonder I didn't look whether uh the the actress that played Elizabeth if she was uh had more acting creds under her belt before she, she appeared in this film. That's she was a bit of an older question. woman, so I have no, to think. No, this is, this is her first credited film. Really? Oh, And she didn't wow. do anything again for seven years. But I then I wonder if there's some that, stage or something. Yeah, that's history. very possible. But then she goes on from that. Uh, she, she played bit parts in a lot of movies that you would recognize the name of. Mm. Uh, Showboat. Which is oh, wow. you know yeah, huge. Okay. She was in The Jerk with Steve Martin. She <laughs> was in. <laughs> she was a bit part in The Waltons. She, uh, gosh, I mean, she she wasn't in major parts. She was in Little House on the Prairie, and you have to think it's interesting that I I actually expected to have seen her in something where I would recognize her from because when she comes on, you immediately think she seems familiar. But I didn't find anything that I could really remember her from. Hmm. Uh, so so interestingly, either she's just incredibly talented or you're right, and she did a lot of stage production before this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just goes to show the difference. And, you know, there are people that can act. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I think, too, you know, we talked a little bit about Robert Earl Jones, this being his first part. He has moments in this movie where he feels very natural and he's speaking mm-hmm. very naturally. And then it's almost like it switches over and somebody told him, oh, no, you have to say this thing or no, face each other when you say it and right. do this or do that. And it gets awkward. So I, I again, I got to come back to I just think that the direction in this is probably hugely to blame yeah i try to give especially when it comes to independent filmmakers and knowing the the trials and tribulations that this guy had to go through in order to make his films you want to give them a little bit of a little bit of leeway but you just can't give them enough to 
<laughs> it, it's one of the reasons I want so badly to see his early movies is to see whether this was just what's the word I want to use? I don't want to say laziness. Mm. Uh, maybe haste. Possibly. Um, maybe yeah. a short production time. You know, something like that. Or I, obviously, yeah. Is it a case of like you know if you're you're a chef and all your ingredients are crap, chances are you're not going to make a good meal. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, it, coming out of silent films, maybe it shouldn't be so surprising that the dialogue is very painful. Mm, that's true. Uh, um, but, yeah, but we're 20 years past the silent films mm-hmm, at this point. It's quite a ways on. Um, well, uh, 20, 10 years, I think. Mm, yeah. But it, it, that 10 years is a long time, and there yeah. definitely are several movies between that and that and this. So, man, I'd be interested to know. I'd, I'd be just, I'd be interested to see some other works that prove me wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I am just, maybe it's like I'm almost morbidly curious to go back to his mm-hmm. earlier films and try to see if it, if it's him or if it's just, you know, what he had to work with this time you know interestingly um, and i i sort of just not thinking of this we have a movie to compare this to that we haven't seen yet and it is the notorious eleanor lee it's got a big chalk of the same people in it yeah, yeah. at least the main characters yeah well uh, it's got it's got edna and it's got uh jones, Robert Earl jones. Yeah. yeah so it would maybe be interesting to take a look at that and say okay he's got some similar people in here or some same people i should say is it is better it worse the same mm-hmm. right yeah that might be interesting that was that just another be. that was like 1940 right it was the so next year, year. Mm-hmm. yeah interesting yeah we may have to cover that in the future <laughs> maybe maybe give us a little bit of breathing yeah. room. <laughs> please <laughs> this was i I was uh, explaining to somebody that I was recording our podcast tonight, and they said, "What are you, what are you recording about?" And I said, "The most boring movie I've ever seen." <laughs> I said, "Oh, it's just painful." <laughs> so a little, a little break from this director would be appreciated. Hopefully, we'll be proven wrong. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it was such. Big, I started watching this film, and you. You have high hopes. You, you, it opens up with this real great little, you know, song and dance thing with uh, with Harris. And I'm like, okay, go. And then it, you're just your heart sinks. Mm-hmm. I mean, we picked this film because of it being this race film. We're like, oh, this is fantastic. We've seen these stereotypes that Oscar Michelle was trying to to battle. Mm-hmm. We've seen these in the films yeah. that we've covered from this era. And so we were really interested in seeing a film and seeing how, you know, the how everyone would be um, portrayed. Portrayed, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we just we really thought it would be an interesting experiment. And I guess it was inter- interesting, <laughs> but not in the way we thought. Not the way we expected. <laughs> and it ended up being very disappointing. Yeah, <laughs> I I agree. I think you know, reading on Mishaw's history is fascinating mm-hmm. and i would love to know more about him but the big the big problem with that is you can know all you want to about him but you can't go back and see those original films as i mentioned before right right at least not at this time hopefully somebody will come forward at some point and have a copy of it or at least remnants of it 
But um, until that happens, unfortunately, we've only got his later stuff to judge by. Yep. Yeah, so you, you can't argue the historical significance of no, these films. not at all. But you also can't argue your way into saying that they're good films. No, <laughs> certainly not this one. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we tend, I think, to say, even with the worst film, well, there's this interesting about it or that interesting about it. And I think there was potential with this storyline. It's yeah. not a very unusual storyline. It's kind of, it's a bit typical, actually, of the era. But it it, it could have been it, so much it's, better. <laughs> There are elements that are typical, but you don't typically find them in the same film. That's true. <laughs> yeah, the, the haunted yeah, the, house along the, the, with the, the murder rap. Yeah, That's yeah, exactly. Little, yeah, the, the, the haunted house comes out of left field, that really, and it's so like, wow, random. what movie are we in? Yes. <laughs> I thought, are we watching the Ghost Breakers? Did I what fall happened? asleep? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Even to the point, I the you know, being the age that the film is, the husband and the second brother I, they are, their build is similar enough and their mannerisms are similar enough. I actually got confused. And, and then to have, I thought, oh, they're talking the murderer into explain. Nope. No, they just have some random guy that knows what happened that they're scaring into telling the truth in a haunted house. Right. So random. And of course, all that'll be, you know, admissible in court. But of course, what what court? Since she's been convicted already, oh, I I am dead certain. Just me personally, dead certain that Elizabeth burned that note. There's no way she left that evidence laying around to be right. found by the cops later. No, I would hope not. <laughs> she's smart enough. She would have burned it right away. Somebody else may have kept it, but not her. <laughs> I'm gonna keep this in this drawer just in case it might come in handy. No one will ever find it here. Yeah, yeah. I suppose if she needed to prove she wasn't the one that shot the ant, then that could yeah. be useful. But yeah, exactly. How, how are you gonna compare the handwriting? You know, how are you gonna prove that the dead guy actually wrote that? <laughs> also, what person is so in love with someone? Well, I suppose a crazy person would shoot the person they love and then shoot themselves. I guess by yeah. definition, that is a crazy person. Maybe yeah, he was driven to sense. it through, you know, all those years of being married to a completely evil witch. Yeah, and they completely just gloss over how he even got into the locked apartment. <laughs> well, she <laughs> Why let the him aunt's in. still asleep in... Uh, I, yeah. She's asleep in her bed. <laughs> There's, yeah. There, yeah, I can, yeah. I, can, I can even forgive it that. Yeah. I mean, I can even forgive it that, but there are just too many other things that make this movie impossible to to like or even watch again yep, Un yep. unless maybe if there were a drinking game associated with it <laughs> that could be fun that i don't know what you'd come up with, every time but... someone repeats what somebody else just said that's how you do it <laughs> yeah you have to take a drink while someone monologues anytime and then take an, and then take another drink as the, someone else repeats what they just anytime said. anytime they repeat what they just said anytime elsie talks to herself out loud <laughs> <laughs> every time that they come up with a fake police procedure <laughs> There, Pull, we can do this. <laughs> pulls a letter out and reads it out loud because that's what you do. That's what people do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Well, 
we have to rate it, which I don't think will be terribly hard. <laughs> I this is I don't always come up with a rating before we record. I came up with a rating before we recorded on this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, I can't do better than one star. Nope. Uh, I, I want to, I mean, let's reiterate, there is a lot of historical value to these films, but uh, there is, I think, other than the historical merit and the achievement of the director, which you can't completely take separately from this film, but they are its only real value in in this venue. Those are its only real value. Yep. And I can't give it better than one star. Nope. I am in complete agreement. <laughs> Same so, thing. Yeah. One star strictly for the historical significance and the, <laughs> the fact that the guy got this thing made yeah. and actually and, in and the theater. <laughs> we don't have a zero Ophels option. <laughs> if, I mean, if we could go below one, I might give it a half, but I don't think we can do that. I think it's between one and five. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, it, you know, and it's funny. I Even that said, I'm not, I'm not sorry we reviewed this movie because it is, it, there is that historical value to it. It's so great to know that Oscar Michaud was around and doing film as early as he was mm-hmm. and in response to the social issues that he saw. Um, and, and again, man would love to see some of his, his earlier things, especially, but can't give it better than a one. Yep. Yep. No, I think we're, we are definitely both in agreement <laughs> and on the same page on this one. And yeah, I, I am curious enough to go back and if we, if any of his earlier stuff exists, if it's, you know, some of the hundred films that still exist, I think I will have to try, especially, yeah, going back to some of the silent, I bet you a lot of that is long gone, Mm -hmm. but. Well, I have to apologize. I am looking right now at a copy of Within Our Gates, his second film. Oh, interesting. Good. uh, It is, it is available. It can be found. i I specifically really wanted to see the homesteader that has is currently the status is a lost film, but uh, you can go back and watch within our gates. And that might be a better option than uh, the notorious, which, whatchamacallit with what's her name, (laughs) the notorious (laughs) Eleanor Lee. (laughs) Yeah. I'm afraid the only thing notorious in that is going to be another, her acting again, but yeah. All right. Well, I guess then that that is going to do it for this one. Um, yeah, if you watch this film prior to us uh, talking about it. Well done. Uh, you. <laughs> well done. Exactly. Well uh, done, you. Thank yeah, you for being actually, a hardcore I mean, listener. <laughs> yeah. We haven't had a really big stinker in a long time. so It's been a long time, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've had some that are kind of like, ah, oh, that was okay. It was, you know, whatever. But one that we were literally walking away from going, oh, my goodness. <laughs> going, oh, do I have to watch it a second time? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it was pretty easy on this one. It's like, oh, yeah, I got to do my synopsis. This won't take long. Yeah. <laughs> If you skip all the songs, it's only about 40 minutes long. (laughs) Yeah, I I honestly, it would have been interesting to see some of these actors, actually, if it were a true musical. (laughs) I agree. You know, I hadn't thought of that before. The performers knew how to perform, and I wanted to see them perform more. Yeah. If it had been staged in a circuit any that it's such a oh, uh, we've beat this dead horse yep yes it stopped no, let's not do it yes we're done 
Lydia, thank you very much. Thank it's, you, uh, as always. You know, especially in this case, it's more fun to talk than it was to watch. <laughs> to watch. Absolutely. I feel the same way. <laughs> uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in another month for uh, with another film. So until then, uh, thank you very much and goodbye. Bye. <laughs>